this will be somewhat of a continuation of last evening, and then the lecture later this afternoon will be even a more advanced movement, if you will. These sessions that I'm giving are for hardcore medical people. Okay? They are not for the music, massage, and meditation folks which are down the hall. These lectures are for those people who can prescribe. These are lectures are for people who are going to get the difficult end-of-the-road case. And centralized pain is one of the great scientific advances of the last decade. And I know everybody in this audience knows quite a bit about it anyway, and I hope to put some refinement on it and then carry on to what I will be presenting here for the first time ever in the history of pain management, literally over the last century, a regimen or protocol that directs itself specifically to neuroinflammation and to neurogenesis. In other words, starting to change from treating patients symptomatically, which we're always going to do, into trying to get some curative measures for these folks. Disclosures and learning objectives. First off, identifying patients who have centralized pain and neuroinflammation. I'm going to solve that one for you real quick. In a vast majority of cases, you can tell who's got centralized pain by asking one question and one question only, and that is, is that pain there all the time? Is it constant 24-7 unless they're asleep? That's pretty much the diagnosis. In other words, once the pain centralizes, it never leaves the central nervous system. Therefore, the patient describes the pain as always being present unless they're asleep and you may have to put them to sleep. So constant pain is the hallmark. So that's the first learning objective. Explain how to detect the presence of complications. Today we are at a point to where you can take neuroinflammatory markers in the serum. We have some pretty good ideas how you do the physical exam. And certainly coming online is the interpretation of MRIs. And the interpretation of MRIs will become the purview of people who have to do the heavy-duty medical work in treating the most serious pain cases. So MRI interpretation will be a great part of what we're going to do in this session and particularly at the later one today. And that effective treatment plans. Again, I'm going to take you back for a second to 1895. In 1895, we had the three basic treatment uh, agents. We had an NSAID called aspirin. We had two opioids, one called heroin, one called morphine. And we had a couple of neuropathic agents called boswell and turmeric. In other words, we've gone over a century, and all we've done is refine the symptomatic treatments of 1895 till now. And now we have how we centralize pain, number one. And number two, we know how the central nervous system is its own endocrine organ, how it makes and utilizes its own neurohormones. 
So in my way of thinking from a clinical perspective, those have been the two great scientific, basic science advances. And all we're talking about here today is taking basic science and moving it in to the clinical arena. And the treatment plans may not be the best, but if you've ever studied rheumatoid arthritis and go back to the 1940s, you see that those physicians had, they only had a couple of three things to work with. And they had to stick with these three agents for literally 50 years. And I know I used them. We had aspirin, and we had cortisol, and we had gold. Now, I had a lot of different kinds of aspirin in those days. I had purple aspirin, I had polka dot aspirin, I had green aspirin. <laughs> but they were all aspirin. Today, we're a little better off, but our first regimens to deal with neuroinflammation are a little crude, if you will, but you've got to start somewhere and you'll learn what those are. At first, you've, some of you heard me say this yesterday, at first, you're going to say, oh my gosh, do I really have to do this? And the answer is yes. But the good news is, we've been doing a lot of things that are a whole lot more unsafe and expensive and difficult Anyway, so the use of the symptomatic agents that we've been using in pain management, ranging from gabapentin and Zimbalta to fentanyl, have been difficult agents to work with, and they're dangerous, as you know. Constant pain, the definition of centralized pain. It's a, it's a pain that is driven by a focus inside the central nervous system and characterized by stimulation of the sympathetic nervous and endocrine systems. What I want to focus on for a few seconds is what is the central nervous system? Now, when I use that term, most of us think in terms of the brain, obviously. Some of us throw in the spinal cord. But I'm going to guess what? I'll bet you hardly any of you, and I didn't either till lately, think of the cauda equina as being part of the central nervous system. And so the cauda equina is part of the central nervous system, and it is diseases of the cauda equina, which is really responsible for such things as failed back syndromes and what have you. And we're going to talk a lot about the cauda equina today, because it turns out when you start dealing with pain in the abdomen, the pelvis, the lower legs, or in the spinal cord, you're probably talking about the cauda equina. So the cauda equina should become part of your lexicon and you'll see why here today. Now, the sympathetic nervous system, there it is. And when you have centralized pain, it's kind of like a battery that never shuts off. Never shuts off. And it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, and it stimulates everything from your stomach to your bladder. And this is why our patients that have centralized pain are always sick. They've always got nausea, they've always got headaches, they've always got twitches. They've always got diarrhea or constipation. They've always got something. Why? Because this system is quite a large system, and any part of that system can be stimulated at any one time. The endocrine system, that battery that never shuts off, stimulates the, the hypothalamus, then the pituitary to put out thyroid-stimulating hormone, adrenal cortical-stimulating hormone, and follicle-stimulating hormone. In other words, it's constantly stimulating our glands, whether it's the thyroid, the ovary, the testicle, the pancreas, to put out more hormone. 
and of course that can exhaust those glands after a while also. Now, centralized pain can be caused by any number of things. Now, there's a couple of sessions, in fact, here at this conference, which are really quite, were quite good, and talks about central pain in its classic form. If you go back and pick up a medical dictionary of 1950, you will see the term central pain. But it usually referred to post-stroke, post-multiple sclerosis, post-Parkinsonism. It was a central nervous or brain disease, if you will. But we've added to that these other things and sort of put them under the rubric of centralized pain. And if you want to use central pain in its classic term, I guess you can. But the most common cause of centralized pain today is an injury in the peripheral nervous system. In other words, it's, a per, it's an injury of your, of your hand or your foot or your head or your ear or your face. It's due to an injury outside the central nervous system and there's a mechanism which we now understand by which that pain gets centralized. That's the most common today. And of course the direct brain injuries, and we, we see this certainly in our practice. I want to call your attention to a couple of these things. Traumatic brain injury is quite common. As you know, these people that get in accidents, whether it's going through their windshield of the car, or tackled in a football game, or what have you, end up with TBI and also infections. Some of us were talking yesterday, and it's becoming quite obvious that there are some viruses out there floating around that infect both the brain and the spinal cord and the cauda equina and can leave you with a permanent terrible pain problem that in effect is centralized and will have to be treated. And you've got some conditions that uh, tend to apparently arise inside the central nervous system and we're not really quite sure why fibromyalgia or vulvodynia, irritable bowel syndrome, why some of these things appear to arise de novo in the central nervous system but they do in some cases. And also I have put here arachnoiditis. Now that is a term that you're going to be using from now on. Let me define what arachnoiditis is very clearly. The arachnoid is the major lining of the spinal canal and of the meninges. It's actually the middle layer, but it is the layer that has the inflammatory cells in it. And so the arachnoid is a layer, a protective layer of the spinal cord and of the brain. It has the ability, unfortunately, to become inflamed. And you don't have to be bit by a spider to get it. Now, where does the term arachnoid come from? Beats me. It's been around over a century. I have no idea whether it's related to spiders. I have no idea whether it's Greek or Latin or French. I have no idea. All I know is it's in all the textbooks, and we've got to use it to our advantage. And so arachnoiditis, in simple terms, and keep this in mind, means an infection or inflammation really of the spinal cord covering or of the meninges covering. So it's, when you saw, see that itis on there around arachnoid, and that means inflammation of the lining, of the lining. 
terminology. Fortunately, terminology over the last 10 years has kind of worked its way into a standard set of terms. So I'm not going to dwell on them because I think everybody now uses them rather, you know, similarly. And so I don't have to go over a lot of them. Uh, but you, I think all of you know this, but the neuroinflammation is caused by activation of the microglial cell. So that's important. Uh, centralization is the process of glial cell activation, neuroinflammation, and embedding of the pain's memory. Neuropathic just means pain after the injury should have healed, but pain is still there. One quick point about what we're talking about today. From what I can tell, you have two kinds of pain generators inside the central nervous system. One is the neuroinflammation, but there does appear to be a pain generators that are not related to inflammation, and, and nobody knows why. There are theories, but no one knows why. I don't know why, but it appears that you've got a neuropathic component as well as a neuroinflammatory component inside the central nervous system. And so we've got to try to treat both components, if you will. Sensitization it just means that you've got an overreaction of the central nervous system to painful stimuli. I always love it when somebody talks about central sensitization. I always like to hear somebody talk about that because that means they don't know what they're talking about. If the best thing they can do in describing pain syndromes is central sensitization, they've got a long ways to go. Okay, because everybody who's got centralized pain is going to have central sensitization. They're all going to overreact to nerve the stimuli. So that term really should be put on the junk pile, in my opinion. Okay, neuroplasticity just means reformation or rebuilding of nerve tissue. And neuroprotection, it's a term that's not used much, but it should be because the major function of neurohormones the ones that are made inside the central nervous system, and that includes progesterone, estradiol, DHEA, pregnenolone, oxytocin, and human chorionic gonadotrophin and human growth hormone. Those hormones have as their primary function to protect us, to keep those nerves and glial cells from degenerating. So it has a protective function as well as a neurogenic function, and that is to make the nerves grow. So when we use these neurohormones therapeutically, we're after both the protective effect as well as the nerve growth effect. You want both effects. And sometimes patients take these things and wonder why they're not getting better, but at least they're not getting worse. And so you have to kind of think in terms protection, growth, when you decide to use these neurohormones therapeutically. Central pain can be mild, moderate, and severe, just like any other disease. And it really should be thought of as a disease. It may well be that when we use the term CRPS and arachnoiditis and post-viral encephalopathies, and we use some of these terms, I suppose you could make a good argument that they really are all one disease, and that is neuroinflammation. And it can be mild, moderate, or severe. And the severe cases take drastic measures to control it, Mild, not so much, obviously. It's also important to note that you can have both peripheral components as well as central components. For example, if you've got a foot problem, 
a very common pain issue, obviously. You may still have to treat that foot locally as well as the central component. So we don't just lose the burden of treating peripheral issues. We've got both. We've got both. How much time to centralization? Interestingly enough, there are plenty of cases on record to where somebody had an injury, gunshot on the battlefield, for example. They developed the pain, and it stuck. They literally developed centralized pain in seconds. So apparently, you can go through the microglial cell activation process awfully fast under some circumstances. The classic is post-surgery or post-injury, and that takes around six to eight weeks post-surgery or post-injury, and that's also why these days if you've got a post-surgical case or a post-injury case and they're not doing well with their pain four to six weeks post-op or post-injury, you want to try to be aggressive with those people if you can and try to get that stopped because once they pass that eight weeks time post-injury or post-surgery, chances are they may have centralized and the other bad news, if you haven't figured this out already, we can control centralized pain. We don't have cures, okay? So preventing centralized pain is you can't say too much about the preventive aspect. And lastly, and this occurs also, some patients that you'll be following for years maybe, and they're doing pretty well. They're taking their NSAIDs. They're taking their muscle relaxants. They're coming in every three or four months. They're doing well. All of a sudden, they show up in your office, and they give you this sad story that, you know, say, Doctor, you know, I was doing pretty well until 10 days ago. I woke up, and I had this terrible pain, and it won't go away. Anybody had that experience with patients? Sure, all of us have. And apparently, that is because the centralization process, the cellular destructive aspect of this, has come to a point to where the pains become permanently embedded. Okay, how central pain develops, I'm not going to go through every one of those steps except to say this. An injury in the peripheral system does something to the microglial cell. We don't know exactly why the microglial cell in the central nervous system will activate, but it does. And here is, on your left-hand side, normal microglial cells. They are the green cells. And you'll notice they have tentacles. The orange cells here are neurons. The green cells are microglial cells. Now, this is from a rat spinal cord. In your right-hand side, those glial cells have been activated. You'll notice that they have enlarged. They have pulled in their tentacles, and they become migratory. I don't know how far they can travel, but they will travel. And their job is to try and place up whether it's a toxin or a bacteria, electromagnetic energy, whatever it's offending, it's the microglial, they try to place up. So they're like any other, like a lymphocyte, they try to protect us, and if they can't deal with the, if they can't get rid of the offending agent, too much inflammation develops, and that's when we get into great difficulties. I'd like to throw this out to you. With lat Without a better explanation, I would just like to offer to you that, from what I can tell, anything that disturbs the biomagnetic energy of the body 
can activate the microglial cell. And this is why things like stress can, you know, sexual assault as a child, for example, trauma on the battlefield, viruses, toxins, anything that seems to dis disrupt the bioelectric magnetic energy of the body apparently, and I say apparently, has the ability to activate the microglial cell. It's not just pain. Now, what happens once the microglial cell is activated and you get neuroinflammation, you start getting cellular destruction. That's what you need to know. And we have fancy terms like apoptosis and things like that, but you don't need to know that. What you need to know is that inflammation inside the nervous system is like inflammation in a boil or a pimple or in a, the knee of a rheumatoid arthritic patient. It's just that there's a big difference. And I'd like for you to make sure you're very clear on one point, extremely clear. A good model to think of things here is rheumatoid arthritis of a joint. Now, when you've got inflammation in a joint with rheumatoid arthritis, we can do a lot of things today. We can put it into remission. We can suppress it. We can make you better. We've got some wonderful agents called biologics today, things like Remicade and Humira, and they're wonderful drugs. But that Inflammation of rheumatoid arthritis is caused by the lymphocyte. In the central nervous system, there are no lymphocytes. There's a microglial cell, which is its counterpart. However, the inflammation that it creates is different. And it is so different, it does not respond to the agents that we use for rheumatoid arthritis or for peripheral inflammation. Therefore, it does not respond to NSAIDs. It does not respond to Remicade or Methotrexate or Humira. In other words, you have to use a different set of compounds to deal with inflammation caused by the microglial cell. And we've wondered for years why we couldn't give people Naproxen or uh, you know, Motrin or something like that and get a response but you don't. Part of it is that the drugs don't cross the blood-brain barrier, and part of it is it's just a different kind of inflammation. And fortunately, we have a lot of in vitro and animal studies giving us a set of drugs that do suppress the microglial cell, and that's what this lecture is about. The drugs that have been identified in vitro and in animals, all I've been doing is translating or transforming, if you will, things from the animal and in vitro laboratory to the clinical setting. Okay, now once you activate these cells, all of these bad things can happen. We've wondered for years why everybody got depressed who had pain. No wonder. Everybody who activates their microglial cells is going to have a decreased attention span, chronic fatigue, insomnia, memory loss, intellectual decline. And so, next time somebody comes up to you with a revelation and says, you know, these pain patients are depressed, say, you know, where have you been? <laughs> we, we've known this for a while now, folks. <laughs> this is not new information. 
But, but I hear this revelation about every 60 days. Somebody comes up with this. Do you know those depressed patients are, have pain? Yeah, yeah, they sure do. Okay, and here's why. Okay, another thing here you need to know about centralized pain, and you need to know this in spades, and that is this inflammatory site can vary in size, location, metabolic disturbances, clinical manifestation, and cellular destruction. Cellular destruction. At this time, they are not commercially available, but MRIs can see the tissue destruction. They're not commercially available yet, but in a research setting, you can see the disappearance of gray and white matter in the brain with neuroinflammation. Now, certainly within a short period of time, we'll have access to that, those kind of MRIs. We do have the new MRIs that show the cauda equina, and I'm going to show you that in a few minutes. But beware of this. Centralization can be mild, moderate, and severe. And when you get a severe case, this is bad. Because those people can go on to flagrant dementia, total life impairment, lives are wiped out, and they are worthy of taking some drastic measures to try to control it. Okay? And some of them are certainly off-label, some are certainly non-standard at this time, but if you don't control it, those people have a terrible future existence, and a lot of them decide to end it all with suicide or whatever they decide to do. Okay? So you don't want to take this lightly at all. It's a serious condition in the severe case. And there it is. This can have a tragic outcome with the tissue destructive. It can be progressive. Our tools to determine whether it's progressive are really clinical, almost really historical on talking to the patient and seeing whether they're, if they're getting worse all the time despite what you're doing, you may have an inflammatory process that just continues to grow. And you may not really be too much aware of it. Diagnosis. Again, the cardinal question is, is that pain there all the time? Once that pain gets embedded in the memory, and it's thought to get embedded when the cells try to regrow or have a neuroplastic change, that somehow the memory of the pain gets trapped. We don't quite understand how it works, but it does work and the pain is constant. Sleep is interfered with fatigue. And they, on all these patients, we'll give you a history of something that preceded this. They had an infection, they had trauma, they had a disease. Physical examination. The, you may have an underlying cause, such as a lumbar spine problem or a shoulder problem, and they'll find those kind of physical signs. But you also, and I would like to make sure everybody can, knows the signs on a physical exam of excess sympathetic discharge. And this should be second nature in pain management, to know how to kind of do that. Uh, they get dilated pupil, uh, hyper, they sweat a lot, uh, hyperreflexia, tachycardia, hypertension, so blood pressure goes up, pulse rate goes up. And my favorite sign is vasoconstriction. That means you get cold hands and cold feet. Let me feel your hands. You don't have it. That's why I shake hands with everybody that comes to my clinic. If that hand's cold, that's a pretty good tip-off right there, what you have. 
Uh, just take a look at this. That's a real patient. They will go as far as Raynaud's phenomenon with their vasoconstriction, and that hand's cold, okay? Uh, so you, you do get that. Uh, and back here, and, and let me just say something else. If you get a patient that comes in, and even though they may have centralized pain, if that blood pressure is normal and that pulse rate's normal, pupils not all dilated or not sweating a lot, that means you don't have a real severe case, too. So you can kind of use these physical signs to gauge severity. It's very coarse. It's very rough. But again, we do the same thing with rheumatoid arthritis. If that knee's big and red and swollen and hot, that's a bad case. If there's no swelling, there's no deformity, eh, that's probably not as bad. So use your physical signs to get a rough idea as to severity. Laboratory findings. Now we're going to start getting into something that I realize will be new for you. I'm not saying you have to do these laboratory tests on mild or cases, but in your severe cases, yes, I think the time has come that a laboratory diagnostic profile should be done. You will see elevated markers. Now, the central nervous system does put out some neuroinflammatory markers. Interestingly enough, just like joints, it will put out, in some cases, an elevated CRP or ESR, particularly a C-reactive protein. In fact, about 40% of these patients will have an elevated CRP. Now, when you deal with these markers, you don't know exactly where they're coming from sometimes, but if you also know they've got centralized pain, you can bet it's coming from the central nervous system in most cases. Now, here are some factors. You can now start doing cytokine panels through LabCorp and Quest and some of your bigger laboratories. How productive are they? I don't know. They're, they're too new to know how good those interleukin panels are. But I'm taking them. Now, here's three over here, tumor necrosis factor, myeloperoxidase, and alpha-1 adotrypsin. Now, these are what are called late-stage inflammatory markers. Uh, my associate on this is a man by the name of Dr. John Valillo. John, raise your hand here. John is an expert on this, and his laboratory has been running these for me. And afterwards, you might want to grab him, because if, if I had my way, I would bequeath everybody in here the ability to take a blood sample and do those three tests, myeloperoxidase, tumor necrosis factor, and alpha-1 antitrypsin, because they tend to go up in these cases. They go up in these cases. It'd be nice if everybody in here could do a panel with all those neuroinflammatory markers. If you do find one that's up, that probably means the case is certainly active. Neuroinflammation is active as, uh, as you sit there and as you draw the blood. Hormone alterations, yes. Today, in contrast to five years ago, you can send a, a patient down to lab, quest, somebody, and get a hormone profile. And this is kind of my standard profile here. And I want to say a couple of things about them. You don't have to do all of them. ACTH is a pituitary hormone. You might want to leave it off uh, because that's a little hard to interpret. Catecholamines you might want to leave off. But you can today, it's new, I've only been able to get them myself in the last year or so, but you can get a serum metanephrine or norepinephrine, and those levels go up in centralized pain, and if the adrenal gland exhausts, they'll go down. 
So catecholamines are a good, another good diagnostic tool. I'm not saying you need to take them, but they are available, and you may want to look into it at some point in time. But I want to make this point to you. If you would take a hormone profile of these three and those three, testosterone, progesterone, estradiol, cortisol, DHA, and pregnenolone, and ACTH, if you were to take that profile and it comes back normal, that's not a very bad case. Because if they've got any severity at all, you're going to find hormone alterations in these cases. So this gives you, again, a way to start working up these patients and determining how severe they may be. Behavior. When these patients get centralized pain, they start pulling in their horns and they start pulling in their life. They stay at home in bed. They don't go anywhere. They don't answer your phone calls. They don't keep half their appointments. They become quite reclusive. And, they'll t and even when they're in your clinic, they'll sort of look straight ahead and not talk to you. It must be a frightening experience. But these people do start picking up this. The one behavior that you'll see in these people is that they just don't interact socially and that they go to bed, they sleep on the couch, they don't like to interact with other people. And I guess it's because their brain just is not up to it or it must activate something that disturbs them. Okay. For example, you're here in Las Vegas, the famous recluse of Las Vegas was Howard Hughes. He used to stay on the top floor of the Tropicana here. Uh, which incidentally, I don't know if it means anything or not, but I was here in 1959 selling radio advertising here on the Strip. <laughs> and I always tried to figure out if I could meet Howard Hughes. <laughs> Never did. <laughs> anyway. I have a little questionnaire that I like to hand out to people on centralized pain. And it has all these common questions. Now at the end here, I brought some of these questionnaires. You can get them if you want. I've got another little questionnaire on neuroinflammation that patients can do. Fill them out. And it's another little tool that you might want to use to get some idea whether this is what they have. Okay, okay diagnosis. In closing out here, in the next 15 minutes, I'll cover some of this, and it will take us right into the arachnoiditis lecture later this afternoon. Now, I already mentioned that an MRIs of the brain showing the loss of gray and white matter are only available on a research basis at this time. But I can't help but think they'll be commercially available everywhere within a short period. Now, your inflamed nerve roots of the cauda equina, you can see. And I'm going to start showing you how this works and how you could do that. I know this may sound funny to you, but it is my candid opinion that every nurse practitioner, PharmD, physician, who prescribes and treats pain patients should know how to look at the new contrast MRIs of the cauda equina. Because this is how you find out why they've got a failed back surgery syndrome. And this tells you what's going on. And actually, they're kind of cute because for the first time, you can sort of see pain. At least you see the direct evidence of it on an MRI. 
and it's easy to interpret. It just takes like anything else in medicine. Once you have a little instruction on it and get used to it, you can see it. Okay, cauda equina. If you were like me when I got into this, you hadn't thought of the cauda equina since you left medical school. Okay. Anyway, for a refresher, your spinal cord ends right in the middle of your spine. The spinal cord ends at L1. At L1. Below L1, you don't have a spinal cord. You have about two dozen nerve roots that hang down in spinal fluid. They are suspended, and they're hanging there, and they float around even a little bit. There's about two dozen of them, and here's a normal diagram, and they hang down, these two dozen, and then some will exit until you get all the way down to the coccyx when they all exit, but that's what it looks like. Now here's a picture of your roots. This is a cadaver, but it's normal. Up here, L1, that's the end of the spinal cord, right there. Here are nerve roots hanging down. And some are a little bigger than others. Some are no, hardly any bigger than a thread. Others are a little like a string. Your arachnoid lining, your arachnoid lining is right here. It's the covering the covering of the canal along the sides. That is the arachnoid lining. Now, there are a number of conditions which will cause the cauda equina nerve roots to inflame. In these nerve roots are microglia, and they will create neuroinflammation. Now, neuroinflammation of the cauda equina is best seen on what we call an axial view of the MRI. Now let me explain a little bit about MRI technology for you. You'll, you'll hear the terms contrast and non-contrast. A non-contrast means they're just going to take the MRI without dye in you. Contrast MRIs means that they're going to give you a shot of dye intravenously and then do the MRI. It is the technology of contrast MRIs that allows me to stand here and talk to you about arachnoiditis today. Arachnoiditis is hardly new. It's just that we can now diagnose it. Why? To, some, to a great extent, has to do with the dyes are better, the technology of the MRI is better, and you can see these things, and you can learn to interpret them as good as I can. Okay, now, the MRIs have two basic views. One is from the side, known as the sagittal or lateral view, and the other is up between your legs where they take the picture in slices going on up through the pelvis on up into the thoracic spine. And uh, they're picture slices are what they are. Now, you can see the neuroinflammation best between L3 uh, and S1. That area is the most is the best place to see it, although, oh, as you get experience, you can see it anywhere up and down the, the cauda equina. Now, how do you see neuroinflammation? You see neuroinflammation by these things. First off, inflammation causes edema, so those nerve roots get big. They swell, and you can see them. Uh, they get displaced 
turns out the nerve roots have a normal displacement. Now, at the arachnoiditis station this afternoon, I'm going to show you the maps. These things have all been mapped out. There are normal maps on where the roots are supposed to be and how big they're supposed to be and their placement. And when you first start looking at these things, I'd keep my maps in front of me so I could kind of know what I was looking at. Now I don't need them, but to get started, you can. And it's, real quite, it's quite simple. Clumping. Clumping is a bad sign. Clumping of nerve roots means that these nerve roots have become inflamed and they stick to each other. And when they start sticking to each other, you have problems. Because that means that everything distal to that clump has neurologic impairment. What kind of neurologic impairment? Maybe your stomach doesn't work, your bladder doesn't work, your breathing doesn't work, and worst of all, you start becoming paralyzed. Start becoming paralyzed. Now, I'd like to stop and ask for a show of hands here for a minute. How many of you have a patient that you've seen in the past, they were coming to your office, and you were treating them for a neck pain or a back pain of some kind, and they come in one day, and sort of out of the blue, they're in a walker or a wheelchair, and you wonder, what happened? How many of you had those cases? Every one of us. And we wondered, what happened? Well, I thought we were doing good. And you were, probably. What you didn't know is that some of those nerve roots decided to stick together and clump on you, or stick to the arachnoid lining. Sure, Yes. So that's another component. Yes. To the, to the inflammation. Yes. Inflammation. That's one of the four components. Spinal cord exercises, as I call it. You've got to keep those nerve roots moving and the spinal fluid flowing. Okay? Absolutely. It should have one. Now, what's going to be embarrassing is some of the good treatments were done 3,000 years ago. <laughs> Okay. Now, adhesions to the arachnoid lining. When that occurs, that's a real bad day in that person's life. Because that means that those nerve roots that are clumped and inflamed have formed adhesions to the wall of the canal. And that is known as adhesive arachnoiditis. Okay? Adhesive arachnoiditis. Now, we're talking about the lumbar spine here primarily. In the neck, they don't normally form adhesions to the wall. They just interfere in another way. So I'm going to primarily talk about the lumbar area, although arachnoiditis, the inflammation of the canal covering, occurs in the neck, and that's really the problem with most of these really severe neck pain cases. Okay. And as you talked about, this will kind of give you some idea. Here is a normal MRI at L1. Okay? Now, what you see is this. You're going to be looking right here. This is the vertebra. This is the spinal process. This is the back. The stomach's up here. But you're going to look right here at the spinal canal. That's the canal. Now, the white is the dye. That is spinal fluid that has been dyed with a white dye to give you a picture here. Now here you have the nerve roots coming out. This is the cauda equina at L1, and they're mostly in the posterior part. And you'll notice that there's about as many nerve roots on the left as there is on the right. 
So the nerve roots are symmetrical on both sides. And that's an important point because all of a sudden you see a patient when they're all on the right side, that's no good. Okay? That means something shifted. Something's impairing those nerve roots. So you want to see the nerve roots on both sides. And what else you see is you see white around all those nerve roots. The white's the, the fluid. The purpose of spinal fluid is several. One is nutri nutrition. That's what brings nutrients in from the general circulation into the spinal cord and the roots. The second thing is it's to reduce friction. Lubricant, just like the oil in your car. Okay? That's the grease in your car. Okay. Here's some more normals at L1 and L2. But here you're starting to see they're branching out a little bit. But you see nice white fluid around all of them. They are normal size, I can tell you that. But they look like little black dots. But they're very normal size and a normal distribution. Here down, at, this is normal at L4 and LS1. Here you've got these, here are the nerve roots. But they're not clumped. And you can see white all the way around. Here's an L4S1, same thing. And again, these are normals. Normals. 39-year-old female with constant crippling back, leg, and foot pain. And this is a lateral view. And here, this looks pretty normal. But if you'll notice these lines right here, when you look at the axial view, you will see the nerve clumping. Here they are. They are clumped right here, and they are stuck to the wall. So she has nerve clumping of the cauda equina and adhesions to the wall, so she would qualify for a diagnosis of adhesive arachnoiditis. 46-year-old male, post-lumbar fusion, same thing. These roots are clumped, they're stuck together, and he's in terrible shape. We're going to run out of time, so I won't go into a lot more other than this. To treat these centralized conditions, I recommend a four-component program or protocol. Neuroinflammation control is number one. Pain relief with our agents, our opioids and our neuropathic agents, has to be done. And, of course, a lot of us now, we use a lot of ketamine, low-dose naltrexone, a lot of the new things. Neurogenesis, that's regrowth, and your spinal cord exercises. Now, we will take up right from here later this afternoon with the, with the issue since we're running out of time. Now, as you leave, I have some uh, questionnaires that you can pick up on the neuroinflammation and centralized pain as well as the protocol that we do use for adhesive arachnoiditis, and we'll have some of those that you can pick up. You've been a kind audience, and I will be staying around for a while. We're out of time. And we will reconvene here, I guess, about 540.